Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guests today need no introduction, but I will do a brief one anyways. We have Jake Chervinsky, the Chief Policy Officer at the Blockchain Association, which is the largest advocacy group for the crypto industry in Washington. Jake is also one of Variant Fund's strategic advisors and a board member at the DeFi Education Fund. Joining Jake, we have Marissa Tashman-Koppel, who is policy counsel at the Blockchain Association, where she helps develop and advocate for policy positions on behalf of the crypto industry, as well as manages long-term legal projects and strategic litigation. Both have been guests on the podcast before. I really admire the work they do, and I was excited to speak with them today. So Jake, Marissa, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. How are you guys doing? It's been a pretty crazy couple months since we last spoke. I think we're, we're doing pretty well. Uh, it is definitely rough out there. The market's been turbulent. There's been a lot of regulatory pressure in the wake of FTX. And, you know, Marissa and my job is to, to sort of front line to push back on, on the folks in Washington, D.C. who want to come after the industry. And so we've had our work cut out for us. But it is joyful work. And I think that things are going pretty well. I think we're, we're sort of past... Most of the troubling issues, the exception of, of the one subject that I think we'll be talking about most today. So I think we're, we're in pretty good spirits. Yeah, I would echo that. I also just a note of positivity. I was at ETH Denver a few weeks ago, and there's just no shortage of excitement in the industry. Like, I think we're sort of this part where it sometimes seems a little bit dark, but we it was great to go to that kind of event because it is just a reminder of like why we're all doing what we're doing and there's building still happening, which is was really, really cool to see. And it's amazing to see the resilience. And when you look back throughout history, you've seen the different bear markets and the sentiment in the headlines and then the reality of when you speak to people in the, in the industry, it's much different. Although I hate to put a damper on that, but one of the big things I wanted to talk to you both about was the debanking. And we've seen discussions around Operation Chokepoint 2.0. We'll talk about that. But first, I wanted to talk about what the Blockchain Association is doing with regards to the freedom of information requests that were sent to the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC demanding information about the unlawful debanking of crypto companies. First of all, big picture. Over the last few months, really starting at the beginning of this year, we've been hearing pretty troubling reports that banks have been closing the accounts of crypto companies, often with no notice and usually also with no explanation. We also saw from the federal banking regulators, you mentioned the FDIC, the Fed and the OCC, some public statements that were basically telling banks not to engage in crypto asset related services and also seemingly implying that they should be closing crypto uh, companies accounts. And this has been a real problem for the industry because obviously people need bank accounts in order to operate. The question though, behind the scenes is, is there really a coordinated effort among those regulators to cut crypto out of the banking system? Or is this just the ordinary course of de-risking among compliance programs at the banks? And those are two very different things. And so what we are doing is investigating that exact issue, what, what folks have been calling Operation Choke Point 2.0. We've actually held off from using that language because 
at least in terms of what's known publicly. It's not clear that the regulators really are trying to force banks to, to close crypto companies' accounts. And so in order to find out what's really going on, we sent Freedom of Information Act requests to all three of those regulators, asking them for documents and other information about what they are saying to the banks. You know, the other piece of this that, that I didn't mention is the closure of some banks that were known as being particularly crypto friendly and that were offering services that were very important for the industry. Really, I mean, uh, Silvergate, also Signature. Those two banks had a lot of crypto customers in their deposit base. They also operated two networks, Sen and Signet, that were really important for the industry. Both of those banks have been closed, and it's possible they were closed due to regulatory pressure over the last you know, couple of, of weeks and months here. And so we're also investigating whether those banks closed because they you know, simply were insolvent or, or suffered bank runs, or if there was something else going on behind the scenes. And FOIA is just a unique tool that we can use. I mean, Jake mentioned it's Freedom of Information Act. And any member of the public can file a FOIA request with any government agency and ask for documents. So the, it was it, it was exciting for us to be able to use that tool. And we'll see what returns, like what documents come back to us. And often the process can take a very, very long time. And there's sometimes some agency hesitation to turn documents over. And there's a bunch of exceptions that theoretically could apply. So we might see some arguments to be made on that point. But I think it was it was a great exercise for us. And I am looking forward to seeing if we get anything. I think the whole industry will be following that closely. And in terms of what could come out of it, what would be the types of documents that would be given? Who would they be given to? Could they be publicly available? Could you explain what the process looks like? There's several different types of documents that, that would be like considered a, a smoking gun, quote unquote. One would be like a written policy of the FDIC to close crypto accounts or close banks that are dealing with crypto clients. We, of course, haven't seen that publicly thus far. Another one could be some interagency coordination. So whether that's emails or memos going back and forth between the agencies regarding how the, the agencies are dealing with banks that have either crypto clients or are holding crypto assets themselves. Then there's communications to the banks themselves. What we're doing is inspired by what happened in the original Operation Choke Point story, which is, is maybe worth talking about for a little bit. You know, the original Operation Choke Point started in 2013 and 2014. It was a formal program at the FDIC to encourage banks to close the accounts of companies in politically disfavored industries. And at the time, like right now, the public wasn't really aware that there was such a policy. In fact, the FDIC went out to the public and said that they did not have such a policy. And it was only through investigation like this and also through litigation that it was revealed that there was actually a written policy with a list of specific industries that the FDIC was telling banks if they did not close the accounts of companies in those industries, the 
banks would lose their deposit insurance, which is basically the end of, of you know, a, a bank's existence in the United States. And so it took a really long time to uncover the fact that this Operation Choke Point was actually happening behind the scenes. And once that was revealed, that's when you know folks were finally able to convince those regulators to stop doing what they were doing because you know that type of operation was itself so you know, politically problematic. And that's where we are right now, right? We we know that we do not know exactly what is going on behind the scenes. And before we join the the chorus of voices who are raising you know the the alarm about this, we're trying to figure out what's really going on. Yeah, and in in the past choke point, like. 1.0, I guess you could call it. There were there was parallel litigation and also a congressional investigation, and Congress has the power to request documents from agencies. So that's how the documents were uncovered in in that. I'm not sure if there were FOIA requests. That would be interesting to look into. But I think you know it just goes to the point of there's multiple tools available. Mm-hmm. And what was the result of uncovering Operation Ch- Choke Point 1.0? The administration basically just ended the program, program meaning the debanking. So I would assume, and Jake, provide more color if you know more, but I would assume that those who were debanked had an easier time to get a bank account. I think that's right. The FDIC published new rules, essentially rescinding that program. As a result of that, the litigation ended without there being a you know a resolution to the due process claims that were brought you know against the regulators in that case. That doesn't mean necessarily though that the banks have decided to treat everyone fairly going forward. This is still a, a big issue that that many industries, not just crypto, have been dealing with for a long time. There have been attempts in Congress to pass legislation, typically referred to as as fair access to banking legislation. In fact, there was one bill that was proposed several years ago that passed the House by an overwhelming majority. It had bipartisan support, both Democrats and Republicans who supported it, but it didn't make it through the Senate. And so it did not become law, but that law would have said that banks couldn't discriminate against specific industries based on whether they were politically disfavored or not. I think, again, we're sort of at the the early stages of a similar effort now. I think we will see more congressional interest in this issue. There hasn't been a full congressional investigation that's been opened into the current banking issue, but we have seen some letters sent by members of Congress to the FDIC asking for information and also to other of the banking regulators. There was one from Majority Whip Tom Emmer um, in the House. There was another led by Senator Bill Haggerty with a, a few other senators who signed on, raising this as a concern and asking for information about whether this is indeed a coordinated effort to cut the crypto industry off from the banking system. And you know, until we find out more, I think it's it's on all of us to continue to pursue that, that information and make sure that crypto is being treated fairly and not being discriminated discriminated against because there really isn't anything different about a crypto company that has a bank account in dollars to pay salaries and rent and taxes and any other company that's doing the same. And as part of the fact gathering, the Blockchain Association has asked members of the public to share their stories with us, which, you know, is just a great forum for people to engage on this this issue with us. And I think that we are in the unique position of a trade association to collect those stories from the industry and parse through the information that we're learning. I don't think you guys need me, Marissa. That was my next question to, to talk on that topic. I, I saw the call for information from people in the industry and feedback from what they've seen with regards to their banking experiences. Are there any stories you've heard that you could share 
Well, we've promised confidentiality to the people that we've talked to, but at a high level, you know, we're hearing stories about people either being denied bank accounts or having their bank accounts closed. And sometimes the there's no reason stated. It's just a letter from the bank saying that your account is closed or a letter saying that we can't open an account for you. And then sometimes they cite crypto as the reason, not necessarily tied to regulator action, but just generally speaking, you know, the crypto industry is more risky, which is reflected in the statements that the various banking regulators have made. Yeah, I, I, I do want to make sure that we honor our promise of confidentiality. So I, I won't tell any specific stories, but I, you know, Marissa is absolutely right in terms of uh, the general picture that's being painted. It, it has become very difficult for companies in the crypto industry over the last few months to get access to bank accounts. And, you know, there are some banks that have decided that they're going to bear the brunt of this regulatory scrutiny and continue to onboard crypto companies. Many of them, though, are being required to do enhanced due diligence, not the normal kind, the, the kind that you would never expect, you know, f- from a bank. And also, you know, asking questions that are not relevant in any way to the, you know, safety and soundness of the bank or the liquidity risk of the crypto customers. So some really weird questions that are that are being asked that seem like more scrutiny of the industry as opposed to the bank doing its job in in compliance trying to make sure that it's that it's safe and sound. We've also heard from some bank employees who are telling us more information about their experience on the other side of those conversations and what they're hearing from regulators and what those conversations sound like. I I won't say any more about that, but I I will say that, you know, usually where there's smoke, there's fire. And I think that before long, we are going to find out that indeed there is not just a coordinated effort, but a policy within the banking regulators that Crypto is not worthy of being banked, and and I think we will continue to see this issue become more problematic for the industry as time goes on until and unless there's something we can do to exert some political or, or legal pressure to stop it from happening. Thank you for sharing those, and I definitely did not mean to pry and don't don't plan to have you share any more regarding the confidentiality. I, I spoke with Amber Scott. She's a compliance expert in Canada, works with many crypto companies on episode, I think it was 60 something. And I, we spoke a bit about this and the debanking and she explained a bit of what you alluded to, Jake, and, and not having background myself, I'll just say what she said is they can impo- they can make the bank's life miserable. And if you bring on customers in a certain demographic, your life can be miserable. And of course, the last thing anyone wants to do is have more work, more due diligence, more boxes to tick when you're going through a process to onboard one specific customer. And it's it's sad to see that that can be so consistently applied across the board. How, how did we get here? What did the banking look like five years ago in the crypto space? Was this always the case or is this something that has changed over time? It's always been difficult uh, for crypto companies to get bank accounts. There's no doubt about that. You know, I think that there's been sort of an ebb and flow to this in that in the very early days, even before I got into crypto, right, in you know, 2014, 2015 period, when the image of crypto was really just the Silk Road, right? The only reason you had Bitcoin was to buy drugs online or something like that. You know, if you told a bank that you were involved in crypto, you would not get a bank account. I think things improved significantly, though, in, you know, 2016, 2017, and and the years that came after that, both because 
a lot of banks started to understand that crypto companies in many ways are just tech startups, right? They are very similar to any other type of tech startup. They are venture backed. They need dollars to pay, like I said, salaries and rent and taxes and vendors and, and things of that nature. And then also there were some banks that started to specialize both in serving crypto companies and also in providing crypto related services, right? That's your silver gates and you know signature banks and, and folks like those. And they really made it easier not just to get a bank account, but also to synchronize the decentralized peer-to-peer -peer networks that we're all you know, building and, and working on with the traditional financial system, which usually just runs from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and closed on the weekends. It was really important to have something like Sen or Signet so that you wouldn't have that problem over the weekend where you couldn't complete a transfer in the traditional financial system that you needed to reflect some financial transaction that had happened on a public blockchain. But again, after FTX and after the banking regulators started issuing statements this year, beginning with a joint statement by all three regulators on January 3rd, leading to a policy statement from the Federal Reserve on January 27th, which they then turned into a final rule on February 7th, despite not following any of the legal requirements for doing any rulemaking, and another warning to the banks from all three regulators in February, the situation has gotten much worse. And then, of course, the, the closures, you, you could either call them failures or you could call them closures of Silvergate and Signature has really, you know, turned crypto back to, you know, to the, the pre, you know, pre 2015 or so era. Yeah, I'm not sure I have much to add because that was such a great description of the history of it. It's been interesting even since I've joined, which I joined the BA last May. So that's since, you know, I've been like full time in crypto only since then. But just the progression of it has been interesting to watch and like very, very unfortunate. Yeah, it is. And, and I know we're not going to speak about anything specific, but I think it's difficult for people to imagine what life can be like without access to a bank account until you go through it. Could you give some examples of how a crypto company would deal with not having access to a bank account or, or where the big issues are in, in that regard? Yeah. So, you know, think of your typical crypto company, right? It has engineers and maybe it has some business development folks and you know HR right your your typical you know company positions and they need to make payroll and what happens in, in a typical scenario is the company gets let's say an email from their bank and the email says your bank account will be closed as of 5 p.m. today. Please provide us a physical address where we can send you know, a, a cashier's check. And if that company already has a second bank account, then maybe they're going to be okay. They can try to cash that check as fast as possible, and then they have to switch over all their payroll services and everything else so that they can pay their employees and you know, pay their rent and not get kicked out of their office and, and all that good stuff. The problem is a lot of crypto companies either only had a single bank account or they had multiple bank accounts that they lost in quick succession. And at that point, what they're doing is they are frantically searching for a new bank account because if they can't find one in time, they have to fire all of their employees, right? In, in the United States, not to give anyone legal advice, generally speaking, it is quite risky to have employees who are either furloughed or who are working but being unpaid. And so the, the common practice is to, to just lay off whoever you can't pay. And that means you can't run your company. So that's what a lot of companies have been dealing with in the last couple of, you know, few weeks and, and couple months. 
And we saw it with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, and that was very much so just the tech sector generally, but it, the symptoms, you know, of it are the same. Like pe- the companies have to pay the employees. There were many stories that I saw just on Twitter of entrepreneurs who had a team of 20 people and, you know, they, ha- they couldn't make payroll and or pay their suppliers and vendors. So it's just like what would happen to any other business? There are maybe two silver linings to this, though. One is I do think that this has brought the industry together in in a pretty meaningful way, right? This this industry broadly is very collaborative. It's to me one of the best things about working in crypto. We're, we're all here to help each other. We're not you know trying to fight over pieces of the pie. We're trying to grow the pie together. And what you had was companies sharing with each other the information of the bankers that they knew, right? Their you know their phone numbers and their emails and connecting people to try to help each other get new bank accounts. And we at the Blockchain Association we're we're helping you know, our members and others in the industry to connect with the banks that were still offering accounts. So I I thought that was really nice to see. The second thing is crypto itself moved its own concept here. A lot of the companies that were able to continue operating, even though they had lost bank accounts, were the ones that had kept some portion of their assets in crypto because you can't lose your, you know, your crypto address, right? You can't, as long as you have your private key, of course. Um, And a lot of people have been paying salaries in USDC or otherwise on chain. And so those companies sort of that, hey, this is a really meaningful technology. It is an alternative to the banking system, not for everything, but there is a lot of power there. It is, it's such an, it's such a horrible thing to see happen and and especially without any due process or anything and i think the bills that you mentioned being potentially moving forward or had been drafted previously and not going through it's just hard to believe that access to a bank account which seems like a fundamental right wouldn't be granted to everybody and these are businesses just like a plumber electrician is a business and and they have employees and people who at the end of the day have families and those are the ones who are affected. And I think it often gets lost when you paint a label like crypto or you paint a label on anything, right? Conservative, Democrat, it doesn't really matter. You paint the label at the end of the day, these are human beings who have family and have needs and, and things like that. And they're the ones who are affected. So, I mean, You've got these really important initiatives going on. You've sent the Freedom of Information Act request. You're collecting stories. What do the next couple weeks and months look like on this initiative for the Blockchain Association? So for us, we're still collecting facts. And I think that we will continue to do so until we feel like we have a full picture of what's happening. There's also potential congressional oversight you know, that was the emphasis in the original choke point, And that's how all of the documents and the policy came out. So as Jake mentioned earlier, we have the letters from various members of Congress. It's possible that there could be hearings on it. I don't, we'll see what happens after, you know, they get a response from the letters. I would expect like potentially some follow-up. And then but possibly litigation. Cooper and Kirk is a, the law firm that handled the choke point, or the original choke point case, and they put out a memo that set forth some potential claims, which I thought were interesting. In particular, just to the to your point, right before you asked that question, the due process claim, which is entirely based on the stigma that the government is putting putting in, like onto the this 
industry. And that's what happened with original choke point, different industries, but that's the ba- the basis of the claim. So yeah, I would recommend that you, that you and whoever is listening, read it. It's a very interesting white paper they put out. It, it's definitely worth a read. I, I think it is important for us not to get ahead of ourselves. And there's probably some listeners out there who will say that we are being naive by not recognizing the, you know, clear conspiracy that the banking regulators are carrying out to, to, you know, conduct Operation Chokepoint 2.0. And I I guess all I would say is I I don't think that we're being naive. I think we're being careful. I think that litigation may be on the table. I think that the Blockchain Association is potentially um, the right party to be thinking about that. Our job is to represent the industry and our members. And this is, I think, the the greatest existential risk, maybe aside from what's happening over with our, our friends at the SEC, to the future of the industry. And it may be that the only way to exert pressure on the regulators to stop is through litigation. And this is, you know, one sort of difficult thing about this this whole situation, which is the regulators don't really respond to the typical kind of, of pressure that you would imagine. They tend to operate independently, right? The Federal Reserve is independent. They are certainly part of what's been happening in, in the last few months. So they're not really subject to political pressure in the way that, that many other executive agencies are. Also, the banks are very highly regulated. And because of that, they are very afraid, generally speaking, of challenging their own regulators. So often the companies that are most affected by these issues are the ones least likely to raise concerns. And so, you know, it really does come down to to the rest of us to, to try to raise awareness about this and then to take the issue to court if that's the right thing to do. And I think reading Cooper and Kirk's white paper will explain not only what the legal basis is for a potential challenge, but it, it should also explain why this matters so much from a policy perspective, right? This is a due process issue. These are companies that are potentially being treated differently, although they are similarly situated because of a political belief that they are somehow less worthy of a bank account than some other company. That is not acceptable in the United States. And I think if if we uncover a true coordinated effort, then I, I think it's certainly fair to say that litigation would be on the table. One thing you mentioned, Jake, that, that I just want to double click on is this relationship between the regulator and the regulatee and how you are the one subject to the rules by the regulator, it's not in your best interest to piss them off, right? To step on their toes. But on top of that, there's also the issue, and maybe it's not an issue, of standing. And I spoke with Caitlin Long of Custodia Bank last week, and and we spoke in, in depth on standing and how you can't have standing to bring a claim unless you are one of those regulated parties. Is that something that could be an issue here? And and what does, how should people be thinking about that? Well, in order to have standing, a party has to allege that there's causation between their harm and the defendant's actions. So, just to take this as an example, if somebody sued the FDIC and that plaintiff was not a bank, they would have to allege in the complaint that it was that the regulators were the cause of them, you know, losing a bank account, being denied a bank account, whatever the harm was. And they probably could allege it on information and belief, which means that they 
don't necessarily need to have the hard evidence in order to allege that, but they would have to have some credible, like they would have to credibly be able to allege it and think that they could get that discovery, that evidence through discovery. So yeah, but their causation is like a necessary component. That's well said. And I think those two issues, Jacob, are related, right? That this question of of standing is really related to the question of the fear of retaliation by an entity that is regulated. And we've we've been struggling with this ourselves because initially we thought, to give you a little bit more of a, a sight into what it's like for Marissa and me day to day at the Blockchain Association, when we saw that the Fed had published their January 27th policy statement as a final rule in the Federal Register, a policy statement that basically said banks are not allowed to issue stablecoins and banks are not allowed to offer any crypto asset related services as a principle, which in theory gets to something like the Bitcoin lending facility that Silvergate had, maybe Sen and Signet themselves. What we said was, how is the Fed publishing this as a final rule despite not following any of the requirements for rulemaking, right? Giving notice of what the rule is, soliciting public comment, addressing those public comments, and then finalizing the rule with the benefit of that public process. The problem was, as we thought about the idea of challenging that rule, we realized we needed to find a bank that was subject to the rule that was willing to launch that challenge. And the problem, again, is, you know, retaliation is real. The banks do not want to pick that fight because things can get way worse for them if they decide to do that. So we were sort of like in what I told Marissa maybe a couple months ago, felt like a Soviet situation. The only people who could actually challenge the government were too scared to do it. And everyone else who was being harmed by this rule was not able to go to court because they did not have standing to challenge the rule. So the regulators were able to do whatever they want with no ability for anyone to challenge it. That to me is un-American. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are so motivated to investigate what's happening right now to see if there's a role for us to play in trying to address it. And that, no, yeah, I was just going to add one point that that rule was very uniquely tied to the activities of the banks and how they dealt with crypto, not necessarily how they dealt with crypto related clients. So there was just like a difference there in terms of our evaluation of that issue. Thank you both, Jake and Marissa. Those those were great answers. And I think it is an important, important point and something I'm looking forward to seeing how you go through with this process if, if you do and, and what that process can look like. Because so I think you both answered the question in different ways, but you can see the parallels between the the, the causation, the claim and standing itself and, and how those two things can tie in together. Jake, you mentioned the SEC and, you know, not to put a damper on everyone, this hasn't been the most positive podcast in, uh, in the crypto space. If you want a positive one, the first episode I did with Jake and, and the first one with Marissa are both very positive. I'll link those in the show notes. But I did want to talk a bit about the hostility in the crypto space, particularly from securities regulators, which is largely in the US been through enforcement actions and settlements. And we've heard rumors or we, we know that Coinbase received a Wells notice from the SEC focused on staking and asset listing, listings. Binance lawsuit was brought by the CFTC. The list could go on for, for quite a while. What is the state of crypto in the US when it comes to securities regulators? Like if you had to explain it in a couple sentences, how would you describe what, what's happening right now? 
I mean, there's a ton of confusion and jurisdictional battles between especially the SEC and the CFTC, like the securities versus commodities conversation, and I would say battle. So that's still happening. There hasn't been any clarification in terms of rulemaking or guidance from the SEC in terms of whether or how an asset is constitutes a investment contract. So that's still an open question. On, and, on that point, yeah, Marissa, just to just to jump in, one thing I've I've start I've been hypothesizing a, a bit about was Gensler's sort of pronouncement that if it's not Bitcoin, it's a security. And to me, that leads to some fundamental tension between rulemaking, right? If you say the rules already apply and this is nothing different, but then all of a sudden go and set out some tailored rules, those two won't work and you'll lose face. And it seems like he's dug himself into that position. How does that, like, is that something that can be sorted out? Do we need a new commissioner or chair to come in? Is is it realistic to ever expect some form of regulation? Because I know in Canada, They've gone the path of regulating the exchanges. We had Quadriga here and that left a big black mark. And so they wanted to regulate custody. They said, if you're holding it, what you have is a security or derivative. They call it a crypto contract. Now, whether that would hold up in court remains to be seen as well. But the regulation has worked and there has been a bespoke exemption application process and system put in place. Is it reasonable to expect something like that in the U.S.? I mean, I think that that approach would make a lot of sense, but I think right now the SEC seems to take the regulation by enforcement approach uh, rather than a more rational and legal approach via proper rulemaking and the notice and comment procedure. It could change if there's a new chair of the SEC, like this was not the situation with Clayton, but with Chair Gensler, it is. And when there's a new chair, you know, who knows what will happen, but a new chair could implement different policies internally and could have more rulemaking and engagement with members of the public on what makes the most sense. The SEC is a chair-run organization through and through. And so, you know, it shouldn't be this way, but it is the case that the views of a single person dictate essentially how the entire commission will address an industry like ours. And in this case, in an extremely consequential way, if we had share Hester Purse, everything would be totally different. And it just so happens that Chair Gensler has decided um, for reasons that he's explained, and, and and maybe for some reasons that he hasn't explained, at least not to, to my satisfaction, that crypto is his enemy, or or at least that it is something that he can use to score political points to achieve you know some other ambition of his. And so the experience of the industry, I think it's fair to say, has been that the commission under Chair Gensler has been totally unwilling to pursue a reasonable risk-based framework that would address the very valid concerns that regulators may have about information asymmetry and market integrity uh, and you know fraud and manipulation and other issues and rather they've decided to say we have these rules they've been you know working for traditional finance for however many years we are not interested in changing them for crypto we're just going to apply them wholesale ignoring the fact that those rules simply do not work in a disintermediated decentralized environment so there should be a way 
for us to come up with reasonable policy that allows entrepreneurs to build these new types of projects here in the United States while complying with those reasonable requirements, that's just not something that we're going to get from, from Chair Gensler's SEC. So until there's a change in leadership, I think we're sort of stuck with what we have, which is a, a pattern of policymaking by lawsuit, right? Regulation by enforcement. That's, that's just where we are. And Dr. Chris Brummer wrote a paper on regulation by enforcement and, and the legality of it. I'm hoping to have him on soon, so we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that in, in the future. One thing you mentioned, Jake, though, that I wanted to, to touch on was the power vested in Chair Gensler and the chair of the SEC themselves. And throughout history, the, the more centralized the power is, the more dangerous it becomes because now one person can exert influence over you know, in numerous amounts of people, in numerable numbers, you don't, you, it really doesn't, you don't know how many it could be. And the reason the U.S. was so different in its founding was the three branches of government, right? The judicial, the executive, and the legislature. And so how has something like this happened in the SEC where now one individual can wield so much power? And maybe, maybe you don't have to say how it's happened, but why is that the case? Well, I can tell you a bit about why it's happened. First, I will say, I think it is deeply undemocratic. And I think we're in a moment in in our country's history where we have to evaluate our institutions and ask, are these institutions accountable to the people or are they not? And here you have an unelected official, right? Someone that no one in the country has voted for, enforcing the law in a way that Congress has not weighed in on, right? So how did we get here? We got here in part because of inaction in Congress and a desire of the regulators to move faster than Congress decided to move. Now, when I say inaction, I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. Congress is a deliberative body. It takes time for Congress to figure out what the law should be. But in the meantime, because you know this Congress now is divided and it's been very difficult for, for Congress to make new law over the course of the last few years, and because it's so challenging to figure out how, how should we regulate crypto, what, what should we do for this new type of, of asset class and technology, the regulators have taken it upon themselves to fill the gap and to stretch their own authority and interpretation of current law in a way that I would say it was it was never intended to be to be stretched in order to apply it to to crypto. Uh, I, you know the best example of this I think is the SEC's interpretation of the term investment contract in the 1933 and 1934 acts. I do not think that that meant digital assets in the way that the SEC has decided to interpret it. I think that whether it should mean that is a major question for Congress to decide. And in the absence of Congress making that decision, the SEC lacks jurisdiction over digital asset markets. Now, you know, Gary Gensler will disagree with me about that. And that's the kind of thing that we do have to figure out. It must be so frustrating for the two of you for the blockchain association and I know it is for everyone in the industry to see this regulation by enforcement when people have been begging for regulation that can work for the industry and to hear someone like Chair Gensler say that all these companies have to do there's a form on the website go fill it out and then you're good I mean it must just drive both of you up the wall (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Paradigm actually just published a a great 
series of papers, I think there were three of them on that exact issue. Like it's not that easy to, it's not just a form, it's a very, very long form and usually lawyers are involved and it's very detailed and the lawyers who are involved specialize in filling out this form and people pay them thousands of dollars an hour in order to fill out the form. So it's just, it's far more complicated. That statement in particular by Chair Gensler I just found it like totally misleading. Yeah, it, I, it was completely misleading. I was glad the paradigm explained why it's not that simple. I think that it, it's just great that that's out there now. Yeah, and then there's then there's the minor detail of compliance with the securities laws after you filed that form, right. which you know <laughs> tends not to be very easy or doable in the context of, of digital assets. Look, it, it is frustrating, of course, because the industry isn't opposed to regulation, right? I I think all of us who are acting in good faith understand that there are risks that are new and different, inherent in this industry and the technology, and we see room for regulation to address those risks. We just want to have a constructive process to figure out what should those regulations be, as opposed to saying, we really think that we've already got it figured out for the rest of time. Finance will never change and neither will anything else. So let's just stick with the old rules. Um, That's just where we are again because of, of current leaders. I guess the the two points I would add, though, are, first of all, I don't think that view is necessarily representative of the entire administration or the entire federal government, right? There are other agencies with different leadership that take a different view, even as between the SEC and the CFTC, there are meaningful differences in perspective. This has always been the case, right? In the last administration under President Trump, there were, you know, leaders of, of agencies who thought crypto was terrible and, you know, leaders of agencies like Brian Brooks at the OCC who really wanted to move the ball forward with respect to crypto. I think we're still sort of in that space. So I don't think we should say the entire government is against crypto just because of a few sort of loud and and particularly active people. The second thing is the SEC cannot actually regulate this industry by enforcement. That will not happen. Um, There would need to be congressional action for the SEC to have jurisdiction over these markets. They can file lawsuits until the cows come home. But ultimately, this is an issue that will be resolved in Congress. And whether it takes two years or 10 years, I think ultimately we will succeed in getting a regulatory framework that works for this technology. It's just a question of how painful it's going to be between here and there. Hester Peirce made a, a funny comment in one of her I think it was one of her dissents about that. And she said something like, if the SEC continues to go at the rate they're going with the enforcement actions, you know, trying to hit every single token issuer or every single exchange or project or whatever, it would take something like 400 years. So (laughs) it just (laughs) illustrates the, the impracticality of it. And I like, I mean, there's definitely room for positivity. But first, I just want to click on one thing you said, Jake, which was about that they can't create this regulation by enforcement. Why can't why can't the SEC just continue to litigate and then use those prior prior decisions if they're favorable to them and say, well, here, it was decided that all digital assets fall into X, Y, or Z buckets. Why can't they just continue to do that rather than waiting for Congress to actually craft rules? 
So I'll give you a couple of reasons. The first is the securities laws apply on a facts and circumstances basis, right? Every token has to be evaluated based on its own unique facts and circumstances. So it's very rare that the SEC will get a ruling from a court that it can then take and automatically apply to some other token that was issued in a different way. And as many of us know, the, the standards and practices for creating and distributing tokens have changed drastically over the course of the last six years or so, right? Six years ago, we'd be talking about initial coin offerings. We don't do that anymore as an industry. And I think the industry will only improve in changing those models in a way that, you know, ensures that those risks that are addressed by the securities laws don't come up in the way that they've, you know, designed or, or distributed the token. The second thing is, the SEC has only achieved court orders from district courts. Those are not binding precedent on anyone in the country. They would have to appeal decisions up to the circuit courts and then ultimately to the Supreme Court to get a ruling that would be broadly applicable. That will take many years. I also do not think that the Supreme Court will agree with the SEC on many of the, the arguments that it's made. The SEC has brought cases on fact patterns favorable to them, on issues that they feel comfortable on in courts where the law is favorable to them. They've, they've sort of fought these battles on their own territory. I do not think that the Supreme Court is their territory. So I think they could try, but ultimately they would not succeed. The, the last point I'll make is the SEC's arguments are that tokens embody investment contracts and therefore should be treated as securities as they trade in secondary markets. The goal of the SEC is to regulate the venues where these assets trade, right? The exchanges and you know the, the, the market participants who are trading on those exchanges. The problem is every time they identify a token that they say is a security, if they get a court order that backs up that theory, the exchange could simply delist that asset. And now that the exchange is right back to having no legally defined securities trading on the exchange. So the exchanges can play this game forever, much longer than Gary Gensler is going to be in his current seat. Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic, so many good points, like very, very good points. And it would just lead to the necessity of hiring half of the Amer half of American attorneys to just bring all those different suits, like given that anyone can create a new token at any time, it it's just not a tenable solution to the industry. And I did want to quickly touch on alternatives, right? The regulation by enforcement isn't the only path forward. And one, I think, bright star to look at is what happened in 1998 with, with regulation ATS, when you had these new alternative trading systems that were emerging and you had this consultation period that where industry was brought in, there were objectives to have a less burdensome system than the existing one using this new technology to move forward. And it's just a good example of how one commission can approach something completely different, which is where the power vested in one individual can really be determinative on how that can move forward. In an ideal world, if you were to wave a magic wand and we could have a system that wouldn't be unduly overly fair to crypto or overly beneficial to crypto, what would a path forward look like for regulation in this industry that would work and be tenable? That's a big question. So we'll start with definitely you, a big question. I mean, one good example is like, I love Hester Purse's safe harbor. That's just a great example of something that would be workable in the meantime. I think the technology is still developing and needs to be studied. So it would be hard to develop 
fully appropriate regulation, you know, that would stand the test of time without having the technology be fully developed. I do think that we can look to the history of new technologies more generally, like phones, the internet, and the government was overall very supportive of these new methods of communicating and interacting with each other. And I think that if they weren't, it would either go overseas or just totally stifle the innovation. So I think we can take some lessons from the past and hope that, you know, the government can support the tech, the development of the technology, because I think it's still, we're still really, really early. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think what it requires is starting not from what are the current rules for some other type of technology, but rather starting from what is the risk that we are regulating for, and then coming up with rules that address those risks. I think by and large, we all agree about about an approach that requires disclosure of important information. Right? That's, that's sort of the system is supposed to work. We want people to make informed decisions, but we then want to give them the freedom to make those decisions for themselves, right? Consumer protection requires consumer choice. And that's really, I, I think, how we should be focusing this. We also want to enable regulators and enforcement divisions and law enforcement to detect and prosecute bad conduct, right? When there is fraud or there is manipulation or there is, you know, some other type of criminal activity, we don't want that in the crypto ecosystem, right? So we want to find ways for for regulators and law enforcement to do their jobs without also sacrificing the benefits of the technology and our individual rights to privacy and self-sovereignty at the same time. These are tough challenges, but I think if we approach them from that principled perspective, we can figure it out. I think there has been as much effort put into that recently because we all know in the industry that there's just no path forward under current leadership. But I think if there was a more constructive tone taken you know, within the agencies, then we could have a really meaningful conversation and figure this out, which is, by the way, happening in other countries other than the United States. Yeah. And to the point about looking at the risks first, the technology itself solves some of the risks. Like if you think about decentralized technology, taking intermediaries out of the picture, and many of our financial regulations are designed to protect against the risks posed by those intermediaries. And then even outside of the financial context, like look at, you know, big tech and privacy and consumer ownership over their own data, like the technology solves for that. I couldn't agree more. And I think a principles-based approach with transparency, engagement, and a gradual rollout, right? If you create rules in a vacuum today, in two years, the industry could look very different, just like the ICO phase faded away. It's if you don't start from principles. And I think the danger is that you mentioned a disclosure regime, right? That was what the Act of 33 was based on, full and fair disclosure. And now it's gone into a full and fair disclosure plus all these other things that we give you permission on whether or not you can do and all these other compliance requirements. And I think a great example of that is the Grayscale ETF and what's happened with that, where they were willing to do full and fair disclosure they just didn't fit exactly what they were looking for in terms of the permission to be granted access to the capital markets in a manner that they had sought. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think related to that, 
we have to think about whether we're trying to solve every problem in a perfect way, or if we're trying to do a good job with what we understand right now. So I think, you know, some folks have advocated for the need for a comprehensive regulatory solution for all of the digital asset markets. I think that's that's a, a really attractive idea. I don't think that it's something that we are at this point prepared to do. I think our view is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Let's regulate what we understand and let's wait on those new types of technologies, the new sectors of the industry where we haven't really figured out yet what the risks are or where the the technology is developing so fast that if we regulate for today's risks, we're going to miss whatever happens next. And this is why a few weeks ago, um, we at the Blockchain Association sent a letter to the House Financial Services Committee advocating that they move forward on the regulation of centralized custodial stablecoin issuers, right? This is a category of crypto market participants that we understand extremely well, right? We know what it means for there to be an entity that is taking custody of user funds and putting them into a bank account and then issuing a liability that represents those assets. Why don't we start there, right? With something that we that we already fully understand that will capture a lot of the market. And then let's sort of work off of that foundation, you know, as we see other opportunities to, to, to capture, you know, other issues in the market. I think that Jake said it extremely well, and I would encourage anyone to, to read our letter that we sent. We published it, and I think it just outlines our position and the reasons why Congress should regulate stable coins. And I'll link that in the show notes below. In Canada, Staff Notice 21332 was published on February 22nd. And what that did was assert the regulator, and it wasn't, it's not binding and it's not law, but it's staff of different securities regulators and the Canadian securities administrators basically saying that they view, they call them value referencing crypto assets, so VRCAs as securities or derivatives, and they use the evidence of indebtedness prong. There is pushback by the Canadian Web3 Council on that. They published a letter, and I know what happens in Canada isn't that important compared to the US, but I think it is. Our political system moves much quicker. It's much smaller scale. And so we've seen, you know, there's registered staking and you can have a compliant custodial platform that offers staking for ETH and SOL that you can access. And I think it is good to look at areas around the world that things have worked. The issue with stablecoins, though, is that if you assert their securities, now every issuance of a stablecoin is an unregistered securities offering. And so that just doesn't work. And it completely hampers an industry that people can be using to make payroll and and doing all these other things. Where do you see, like, I think obviously the the disclosure regime is important, but something like a stablecoin seems to fill the role of a bank right? Where you you deposit something, they give you something in return. Now you can use it, but it is different, isn't it? And so we, do we need specific rules for disclosure? What do the, what could the rules for stable coins look like? I think our letter outlines it pretty well, but we go through some core principles and I guess just at a high level, like one thing it could touch on is reserves and how to appropriately back the stable coins. So that's that's a big thing. And then it it is narrow and only addressing centralized custodial stable coins, because as we were talking about before, the regulation would be different for, you know, a decentralized issuer of a stable coin. So it's important to like 
make sure that that is reflected in the the language of the regulation itself itself. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. And you know, the truth is the major stablecoin issuers now are already doing a really good job on most of these principles, right? I mean, it's not that hard to tell the difference between a well-run stablecoin and, you know, a bucket shop that promises that they've got your money, but where it is, you have no idea. And I, I think, you know, there are some pretty reasonable requirements that you could put into place. Things like Marissa said, you know, what are the assets that are backing the stablecoin? Is it high quality liquid assets or is it, you know, junk bonds or, you know, other crypto assets that are, you know, highly volatile or something like that? I think you can put some reasonable restrictions in place around that. Some operational requirements, right? How do you redeem those stablecoins? When do you have access to redeem them? How are they created? What is the process around that? I think could definitely get addressed. Are the assets being commingled? with the funds of the issuer, or are they being segregated so that there's no concern about, you know, losing those assets? You know, things like that, I think, not that hard for us to work out. And there's already been a lot of progress made in Congress to try to work those things out. We've seen several different proposals for legislation, one from Senator Toomey last year, which was really fantastic, although he's no longer in the Senate. There was a a reported effort between Representatives McHenry and Waters that got pretty far, although I don't think they ended up publishing a draft. I think that they should, if they haven't already, pick right back up where they left off and, and you know get a draft together and put it out for comment and move it forward. I think also on the disclosure point, that still plays a role here with just transparency generally. I think that sort of that theme would underlies everything that we're talking about. And, and it ties into the principles that you both alluded to. It's regulating for the risks rather than any possible thing that could happen in the future, right? If you look at something like stablecoins, what are the major risks? Well, the biggest and most obvious one is the reserve. And if the reserve doesn't match up to what what the issuers have been granting, then there's an issue, right? And then there's a big problem that, that will need to be sorted out. That's exactly right. And and the, the wrong way to look at this is to say, well, in the old system, only banks created money. Therefore, only banks should be allowed to create stable coins, right? That, there's no reason to reach that conclusion, except perhaps to continue to build a regulatory moat around banks and stop innovative competitors from you know taking market share away from them. That's why we have always advocated that non-bank issuers should also be able to create and issue stable coins. And I think at this point, there's broad agreement within Congress that is the case. So that's what we would expect to see in any legislation. And it's about using the technology that's available, right? Why were banks the only ones who issued that? Well, you had to put your gold somewhere. And how would you stop someone from just forging certificates or receipts of gold? There was no way to do that. We now have a system that you can't forge a stablecoin. Like I can't send USD, I can't double spend my USDC. We need to leverage the technology to move towards a path that can provide a future that wasn't before possible. And I think that's where we all get so excited about the technology because these systems emerge for a reason. There's a reason that the disclosure rules came in and that there is a permissioning system. But now we have a way to add something new and we have a new tool in the toolbox that I think stablecoins give us the opportunity to use. Well said. Yeah, very well said. I love looking back at the history. You know, there was a one podcast I listened to where it compared what's happening now to the Renaissance. And, 
you know, the double entry accounting system that was created, I think, right before the Renaissance, but it basically allowed class mobility. And that's something that like I didn't think about before. But now we're getting into users having ownership over their data. And that's like a completely new paradigm. Yeah. And even throughout history, you can look at a new technology emerging and then what were the incumbents? How did they react and what were the pushback and how did that overcome? And I think in the long run, efficiency and freedom tends to win, at least in America. And so I'm bullish on on that and, and the work you guys are doing. Over the And, and we're, we have about a minute left, so maybe we'll just wrap it up there. But uh, really wanted to thank you both, Jake and Marissa, for all the work you do. I think I speak for the industry when I say we're all backing you, excited for what's to come from the Blockchain Association, the investigations and everything. And and I think we do, it's a very important time for the industry. It's a maturing for the industry. And it's something where once rules are in place, that'll really change the nature of of things going forward. So thank you both for taking the time and, and for the work you do. Thank you for having us on and for doing this podcast. I, I'm a listener, frequent listener. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, right back at you. Thank you very much. And uh, always a pleasure to chat with you.